0: I'm in a bus, desperately trying to keep cool. It's Friday afternoon, and the 218 is packed to capacity with people returning to Ramallah from prayers at the Al aqsa It's not a cool Friday. The breezes that were blowing through the old city yesterday as I meandered around the streets have disappeared completely. I point the AC vents at my face and soak in their meager whisper of cool air. It's 30 minutes into the bus ride, and I see it. The Israeli side of the wall is blank gray concrete, stretching up and down the rolling hills of East Jerusalem. It's a presence, imposing, dark, military. Crossing the Kalandia checkpoint, that image changes. Painted on drab rock are multicolored portraits, phrases in English and Arabic, works of art. This side of the wall is beautiful, though no less terrible. All this beauty has a singular goal of imagining a world where the canvas no longer exists. Welcome to Waywards, a podcast about places. In this episode, I'll tell you stories about Palestine. I am in a taxi van towards Bethlehem from Ramallah. Three friends from the hostel are in the back seat, and I'm in the middle, next to two Palestinian teenagers. The road is far too bumpy to read the book I have with me, and sensing my boredom, one of the Palestinians strikes up a conversation. He tells me he's Muslim, but likes going to Bethlehem on weekends. He calls it a Christian island between the Muslim West Bank and Jewish Israel. We talk about religion, and he points out that Christianity, Judaism, and Islam are all very similar in their laws and doctrine, I agree, and we talk about Abraham and his sons. I mention that if people thought the way he does, maybe they'd be less angry at each other. He gently corrects me. I am angry, he says, but I express that anger peacefully. He tells me about going to protests, and I feel stupid for imagining that anger goes away with clearer theology. After sitting in the van for almost an hour, we're restless. I ask him how much further away Bethlehem is. He tells me we're almost there, but says the road we're on isn't the most direct route. A faster road runs close to Israeli settlements, so the authorities don't let Palestinians use it. We pass through a place called the Valley of Fire. From the window I can see the settlements, new apartment blocks surrounded by concrete walls dotting the hillsides. I am in Hebron, on a deserted market street. The locals called it a ghost town, but I know ghost towns from back home in Oklahoma. This is far from those dots on a map in my home state, left to rot after economies passed them by. A different sort of disaster happened here. They do share the same quiet, the same eerie stillness, but here it's punctured by young IDF soldiers out jogging, older ones patrolling the streets with assault rifles, Orthodox Jewish families playing in the settlement nearby. Americans are waved through the two checkpoints onto the street, but Palestinians are not. After an Israeli extremist shot a group of Muslims in prayer in the mid-90s, the Israeli Defense Force thought it best to separate the settlers from the Palestinians. Unfortunately for the latter, the central market street of the city ran up against one of the settlements. Shops were closed, businesses forfeited, doors bolted shut. A few Palestinian families were left in their homes. I watched one of them descend a set of stairs, at the bottom was an Israeli soldier. They spoke in Arabic. One of the other Americans in my group spoke the language, so I asked what they were saying. It sounds like they're buying groceries, he told me. The soldier's asking, how many are going? How long? It was a negotiation. A 21-year-old conscript had absolute control over the family's movements, like a mild form of house arrest. Eventually, he let them through. I am with a friend at a small art gallery and museum near the old city of Ramallah. We're having coffee with the owner, an incredibly friendly man who runs the gallery out of his family's 200-year-old house. He tells us that Ramallah is forgetting itself. The city's inundated with aid money and caters to high-end European clientele. Young people who move here don't have any recollection of the city's history. They just want fancy bars where they can drink and smoke. He wants to make sure people remember that Ramallah isn't all upscale buildings and NGOs. The conversation turns to checkpoints. The border between Israel and Palestine is amorphous at best and predatory at worst. The most that moderates on both sides can agree on is that it should probably exist somewhere close to lines drawn before the 1967 Six Days War, with certain concessions made for settlement patterns in the 50 years since. But, in the lack of any international agreements, Israel set up a system of checkpoints and walls a fair distance into Palestine from those borders. They decide who can pass almost at will. There seems to be very little procedure, process, or appeal when crossings are denied. If you have family or friends on one side of the checkpoint, you have to rely on the goodwill of a border guard to get through. The museum owner's mother was sick. She needed an emergency triple heart bypass surgery, and the wait time for the procedure in Palestine was almost a year. So, he decided to try and take her to Jerusalem. On the first attempt, their crossing was denied. They drove to another checkpoint. At the second checkpoint, a superior officer told her that she could cross if she showed him her heart medication as proof of the illness. She showed him the medicine, but the conversation quickly changed. He started to demand medical records instead. Frustrated, they left to the hospital in Palestine, and the hospital faxed the medical records to the checkpoint. An ambulance stood waiting on the Israeli side to take her to the hospital in Jerusalem where the surgery was to be performed. She returned to the checkpoint, waited for several hours. Finally, the border guards returned. She couldn't pass. Security concerns. A year later, she had heart bypass surgery in Ramallah, but in between the attempted crossing and the surgery, she received a special pass for Christians to go on holidays within Israel, a pass reserved only for those who Israel knew presented no security risk. I asked him about his life during the Second Intifada, the Palestinian uprising between 2000 and 2005 that saw an uptick in suicide bombings directed at Israeli cities, In an Israeli invasion of the West Bank with an occupation of Ramallah. When I mentioned it, he pulled out his iPad. He opened the Photos app. Scrolling through for a while, he came across scans of images he took from his house of tanks rolling through the city. You could recognize the street. It was right next to where we were sipping coffee. He told us about a friend's brother in Bethlehem who opened a window in his apartment during the occupation only to immediately receive a sniper's bullet directly to the head, killing him instantly. He told us about the curfews, where they had a few hours to go shop and anyone left in the streets afterwards would be shot, no questions asked. When I asked him what he wanted out of the peace process, he told me he didn't really care. A one-state solution or a two-state solution either would be fine so long as they had a sense of law in Palestine, a protection of their rights, some sort of long-sought-after normalcy. I'm in a car in Israel, and I'm talking about politics with the Israeli driver. He breaches the topic somewhat reluctantly, as this isn't usually a discussion in which someone comes in ready to listen. After what I've heard in Palestine, I wonder if I'm ready to listen, but I try. There are horrors here, too. His family in Hebron half-killed and the rest forced out of their home by riots in the 1920s. A friend dying in his arms after a bombing in Jerusalem at age 14, a dent in his skull from the shrapnel still remains. But instead of getting angry, he's empathetic to the extreme. He has Palestinian friends, he goes out of his way to understand what life is like in the West Bank. He genuinely wants things to get better, even when I'd find it hard to blame him for being angry or upset. I remember thinking he would have a lot to talk about with the museum owner. Two people who have seen enough violence who just want some closure, some way for this ongoing disaster to finally end. Maybe someday you can stop by the museum, have a coffee, and a long talk. WayWords was written by me, Esten Hertel. Opening music was by the Turkey Mountain Sunset Band. Special thanks to Lindsay Hurdle for proofreading the script, and to Joe Lovelace, Rebecca Lawson, and Evan Kaplan for feedback on the episode. And thanks to you for listening. Stay tuned for new episodes of WayWords, coming soon. Thanks.